sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts straight through all the fluff, straight through all the lies that we tell ourselves, Lord. Father, it divides down to the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And that's what we need, Father. We need heart surgery. We need you to surgically remove everything in our heart that is not of you, Father God. Speak to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the title of the message this morning is The Misery of Complacency. The Misery of Complacency. Um, As we come to chapter 6 in Amos, what we are coming to is the second half of his third sermon message. Um, It's hard to believe that there's actually somebody who would speak longer than I do, but we're coming to his second message, and um, he's going to speak to them a second woe, and it's about complacency. And the problem with complacency is it is a danger that is always lurking and it's always waiting to rear its ugly head. It wants to come up and take up residency in our attitudes and in our lives. And it's something we have to battle against constantly. For with it come grave consequences and utter misery. The greatest potential threat of falling into complacency comes at a time when we feel we've arrived. We spend our lives struggling to get to one area and we feel like we've arrived. If you've ever had the goal of getting fit or, or losing a certain amount of weight on a diet, you get to that point and what happens? Complacency sets in and you, and you say, well, I don't need that anymore. And, and then you put on all the weight again. You go, what happened? Or you fight hard to get to a certain position in your job and then you stop working hard after you get that promotion. What, what do you think is going to happen? It comes when we have arrived because we become comfortable enough that we let our guard down. Complacency usually comes with a great cost many are unaware of and they're not ready for. When you become complacent in handling firearms, you will experience a negligent discharge and hopefully it's in a safe direction. One who's complacent in awareness is going to miss the signs of danger that's around them. They tell you you need to be aware of your surroundings when you're going to and from your car as you're out shopping or when you're in a certain area. Like, pay attention to the area you're in. If you ignore all that and you just go, well, I'm fine, I'm just going to be in my car, um, you're setting yourself up for danger. Complacency in the job leads to not achieving any longer. You start coasting. You go, well, I just finished that big old project and I worked my tail off for it, so now I get to just like do nothing. As if you've arrived. Complacency causes us to skip maintenance, pass on training, and otherwise developing in any way ceases to happen. Now what complacency is, is this. Complacency is a state of mind characterized by an absence of fear. If there were really nothing to fear, there's nothing to hurt you, right? When there's something that can hurt you and you're not fearful, beware, because being fearful makes you careful. And it's not talking about the paralyzing fear, but the fear that makes us go, hey, I better pay attention to what I'm doing. 
Being complacent about a hazard is often confused with being unaware of a hazard. There's a difference between I didn't know there was a hazard to I was sure that that hazard would never happen to me. It's an entirely different problem. And little did we know that OSHA set it up inside most places that they actually set up complacency to happen. You ever seen those boards that say so many days without an accident at work? When it starts getting into a larger number, people go, yeah, see, we're totally safe. We don't have to worry about anything. And that's when the accidents happen. Because we have that thought, it's never going to happen to me. I don't have anything to worry about. That's the big problem with complacency. There's another complacency that we need to be aware of, though. And we need to be aware of this complacency just as much. It's called spiritual complacency. Amos chapter 6, as I said, is a continuation of his third sermon message to Israel. And it's separated out as the second declared woe on Israel. Out of the message where Amos is lamenting over Israel and singing their funeral song, remember? He says that they've been lulled to ignore her danger. The danger of losing the fear of the Lord. Spiritual complacency comes from a place of comfort and enjoyment but it's fleeting, that comfort and enjoyment is fleeting, leaving only misery behind it. It results in judgment fast and swift upon you. As we read this message of woe to Israel, I want us to notice how easily it could also be spoken of, of America and even the churches in America and possibly even in our own lives, we need to heed this woe and warning because we need to be vigilant in our lives against spiritual complacency. In verse one, Amos starts off, he says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria. The notable people in this first of the nations, those the house of Israel comes to. Cross over to Kalneh and see, and go from there to the great Hamath, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is their territory larger than yours? You dismiss any thought of the evil day and bring in a reign of violence. They lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches and dine on lambs and the flock and calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bowlful and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile as the first of the captives and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. The Lord God is sworn by himself. This is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies, I loathe Jacob's pride and hate his citadels. So I will hand over the city and everything in it. And if there are 10 men left in one house, they will die. A close relative and burner will remove his corpse from the house. He will call to someone in the inner recesses of the house. Any more with you? And that person will reply, none. And then he will say, silence, because the Lord's name must not be invoked. For the Lord commands... The large house will be smashed to pieces and the small house to rubble. Do horses gallop on the cliffs? Does anyone plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. 
You who rejoice over Lodabar and say, didn't we capture Carnaim for ourselves by our own strength? But look, I am raising up a nation against you, house of Israel. This is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies, and they will oppress you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. Spiritual complacency, we have to be aware of it because spiritual complacency leads us to false security. Spiritual complacency leads us to false security. Look at what uh, Amos said in the first two verses again. In the first three verses, he says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria. The notable people in this first of the nations those the house of Israel comes to. Cross over to Calneh and see. Go from there to great Hamath, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is their territory larger than yours? You dismiss any thought of the evil day and bring in a reign of violence. Amos says, woe to those who are at ease. He says, those at ease in Zion... That's another name for Judah. So now he's also speaking to the southern kingdom here because Judah is slipping into this as well. The rest of the message will be um, proclaimed to the northern kingdom. That's why he says, and to those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria. So Samaria was the northern kingdom. Those who are at ease, that word in the Hebrew is shanan. There's a spelling test later, so I hope you can spell that. But the reason why I bring out that word is because this word speaks of one who is free from fear, one who is free from doubt. They're easy in mind and they feel secure. This speaks of those who are comfortable and have no lingering fear or concern. They rest at ease. They have no concern. What, what do I need to be worried about? Look at all that I have. Look at all that I am. They're marked by a confidence and an assurance. And Amos says, woe to those in Zion, those of Judah who are free from fear or doubt and have a confidence and assurance. But Amos also, as I said, includes northern kingdom of Israel. He says, woe to those who feel secure. This word for secure is a different word, and it means unsuspecting. These are the ones who are reliant and confident in the hill in which they dwell. You see, back in those days, a hill was a natural defense. When you have the top of the hill, you are naturally defended. That's why we always used to play king of the hill. Look at the last part of verse 1, though. Amos is specifically speaking to the notable people to the notable people of the first of the nations, those who are distinguished, those who are noteworthy, so the, the leaders. The first of the nations is a reference to their inflated sense of self as the highest or the best nation. Look at how great we are. The first of the nations. We have another name for that today. We call them first world countries. says that these are those who the house of Israel comes to for counsel, for example, for leadership. 
These are the leaders of Samaria, of Israel, who are living in such a way to lead the people into believing that they are safe and they are secure and that everything they're doing is okay. And so they might as well take it easy and rest. The nation is enjoying prosperity at this time. They have a relative time of peace. The leaders are living the example that they'd have arrived and now it's time to enjoy the good life and rest on their achievements. It's not a hard thing to imagine, right? As I said before, anytime we we go through this long period where we strive to achieve something, when we get to the top of that mountain of achievement, we want to sit and rest. When when we see people at the Olympics, when we see people competing at a sports level and, and, and they win that final trophy and we're like, wow, now they can rest. And they always ask them, what are you going to do now? And we were always expecting, well, I'm just going to sit down and do nothing. I'm going to go take it easy. I'm going to go to McDonald's or what have you. You know what they all, they all usually say? I got to get back in it and I got to make sure I stay on top. You can't take it easy to, remain, to continue where you are or go higher. You have to stay moving. Amos telling them how they feel that they're so safe and secure and have nothing to worry about. He directs them. He says, go look at these cities. And he points out these cities for a specific reason. They're all in ruins. In verse two, Amos says, cross over to Calneh and go from there to see Hamath. Finally go and take a gander at Gath of the Philistines, the, the last one that they would really be familiar with. The first two are ruins left behind by Aram and Assyria. The last one is Gath. If you remember Gath, it's famous for where Goliath came from. It's a city of the Philistines that was on more than one occasion completely and utterly decimated by the nation of Israel. Amos says, go look and observe and understand these cities carefully because these were massive cities. They were once prosperous. They once had it all. And he says, are you better than these kingdoms? And of course, Israel in their staunch uh, rebellion to the Lord. Of course we are. For the Lord's chosen. God is with us. He says, are their territory larger than yours? He's saying, is Israel better to fend off an attack? Not at all. Is their territory larger? Yeah, it was. Though... Their greatness and their large territory, they, however, are in ruin. They were unable to be kept from being overrun. He's trying to get them to understand this. Don't think that you are safe and that you are secure and that you can say, look at us, we protect ourselves. We are so secure. Now in verse three, Amos hits him with his point. He says, you dismiss any thought of the evil day. There's a couple of ways that you can apply this. One, they dismiss any thought, they refuse to accept, or they're arrogantly and foolishly confident that they dismiss any thought of any calamity that will come upon them. Amos now, this is his third message. They've heard the message that God is coming to judge them, yet they're like, ah, I don't have to worry about that. Look at us, we're safe and secure. We have it all. It's going so good, how could it ever go bad? I can't tell you how many times America has been doing so well that we always go, there's no way it could go bad. 
And we've seen that it can go bad real quick. It all depends on the policies put in place and what everybody's trusting in. We need to understand. Really? What happened? There's my verse three. Oh, well, I don't have it. That's okay. False security sets in not during trouble, not during the struggle. False security sets in during the calm and the quiet. When we start going, oh, it's been like 30 days, nothing's happened. I don't have to worry anymore. God is rebuking Israel of their prideful, complacent, false security, and he did this by comparing them to their pagan neighbors. The pagans whom Israel knew suffered the judgment of God already, yet somehow Israel is saying, well, God would never judge us. We don't have to worry about it. Or at worst, they're saying it's not going to happen yet. And they bring in a reign of violence. They display, they bring out a reign of terror because they do whatever they want because they're not expecting God to react or do anything. The Washington Times reported a conversation between Captain Edward John Smith, who stated that he believed the Titanic to be absolutely unsinkable. Even God himself cannot sink this ship. That's what he said, word for word. It was the remotely sealable compartments that caused the ship to be deemed unsinkable. When the ship hit the iceberg, the rivets popped off, effectively unzipping the hole at the seams. The hole in the hull allowed these compartments to flood, causing the unsinkable ship to not only sink, but to do so rapidly. Be careful when you say that God can't do something. The very thing you trust in is what he will use to sink you. In 1 Thessalonians 5.3, Paul warns us about this. He says, when they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. You see, all throughout scripture are warned, watch, wait, be ready, be expecting for the day to come when I'm going to bring judgment upon the earth. Watch, wait, look up, look for the signs, understand the signs. Never once does he say, you know what? Just take it easy and ignore everything going on. That is not a command in scripture you'll find anywhere. Because what happens when you get that false sense of security is then you're lulled by indulgence. You're lulled by indulgence. Let's see the indulgence that Amos brings out that is described. He says, they lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches and dine on the lambs from the flock and the calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bowlful and they anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile as the first of the captives, and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. See, the complacency of Israel came from their indulgence. When we begin to indulge, we start going, this is really good. 
I just want to stay here forever. And the comforts afforded to them lulled them into a sense of complacency. It's not a bad thing to enjoy the comforts here and there. Obviously, it's okay to enjoy the fruits of our labor. That's not at all what the Bible is telling us to do. There's too many people that I run into that think that Christianity is all about denying yourself completely and afflicting yourself only. That's not true. God created life to be enjoyed, but there is a danger to that. We, we are able to enjoy it. The Bible doesn't ever prohibit it. Psalm 128.2, you will surely eat what your hands have worked for. You will be happy and it will go well for you. Ecclesiastes 3.13, it is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. Ecclesiastes 5. Solomon says, here's what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him, because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he also allowed him to enjoy them. Take his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. We are allowed to enjoy these things. God gave us the ability to create with our hands so that we can enjoy the fruits of our labor. What he doesn't want us to do is enjoy it at the expense of our relationship with him. The Bible speaks against and leads us into the danger of overindulgence and Israel truly overindulged. Amos says they laid down on ivory beds, sprawled out on their couches. That sounds comfortable, by the way. You ever sprawled out and just like didn't have a care for how much room you were really taking up and you're just sprawled out? How many of you do that um, at night with your spouse and they end up on the floor? We, we, we read that and we go, oh, that means we're not allowed to lay down. Oh, that means we're not allowed to spread out. That's not true. What he's talking about is he said they rested in luxury and comfort, and that's fine. Sprawled out. And that gives us the idea of fully extended, stretched out. The idea behind that, the, the language behind that word is sprawled out lounging, not for sleep, but more of a lazy rest. It's a sprawled stupor from satiation and drunkenness. This is the one who has eaten so much they can't move and has drank so much they better lay down or they are going to start running into things, falling all over the place. And they're dining on lambs and calves from the flocks and stalls. And the picture here is not eating for necessity. It's overeating. It's overindulging to the excess. It's eating because it's there as opposed to what you need. This isn't a, a celebratory of once in a while. It's not like a birthday feast. Okay, we can go crazy on birthdays. We can go crazy on Thanksgiving. We can go crazy for Christmas or whatever day you want to lift up and go crazy, but not every day. 
The overindulgence filled their bellies. Drunkenness took over their minds. So they just sprawled out, laid around without a care, without any sense of responsibility, only for their desire and more and more for their comforts. And they were slowly but surely lulled by the indulgence that their hearts are now turned and they are set on the pleasures of the world. It's food, it's drink, and the things it provides. Israel's heart was set on their pleasures and no longer on their God. It led them to vigorously pursue these earthly things and it left them spiritually paralyzed. It produced a spiritual fatness and lethargy. We're lulled to complacency when we make pleasures our priority and our pursuit. Whether it's food, fun, television, internet, hobbies, resting, work, business, our family, our friends, or even money, possessions, electronics, the list goes on and on and on and on. You can overindulge in anything in this life that you're doing to the excess while ignoring God. Overindulgence could also be seen as idolatry because you love those things more than you're loving the Lord. It's not in having, I have to be very careful with that. In America, we're very blessed. We can have a lot of different things. We can use a lot of different things. And the last thing I want to do is have people leave here going, man, I have so much stuff. But I mean, consider it. Allow God to search your heart. But know that it's not in having these things. It's the overindulgence. Overindulgence happens when they take the place of our relationship with God when we're working so hard that we're like, well, I can't really make it to church. When we are so busy that we can't do that, but we stick to that TV schedule and we're always there. We're always ready for our show when it comes on. Although now we have DVR, so it's like on demand. But when we start planning our, what do we plan our lives around? Food, fun, or are our lives planned around our relationship with God? doesn't just have to be here at church. Our relationship with God includes reading our word. We have to, or reading his word, not our word. We read his word on our time in our different places. It talks about spending time with God, talking in prayer, having that relationship with him, going, God, what is it you want me doing as opposed to God, this is what I want to do. Would you just bless what I want to do? Amos describes this sort of self-delusion that they have where they're improvising songs to the sound of harps and invent their own musical instruments like David. What I, what I get from this and what other commentators agree is in their revelry, they imagine themselves to be like David. They're drunk and in their stupor and they're plucking on these things, making weird, they're, they're blowing on their beer bottles. And they're going, look, I can make a song like David too. Here, let me worship the Lord. And they think that they're worshiping the Lord by doing this. But all they're doing is appealing to their own flesh. They're not just content to drink wine from goblets and cups. It says they're drinking it by the bowl full. And all the while, 
not even grieving over the ruin of Joseph. Joseph is another nickname for the nation. They're not even grieving over it because they know that the coming disaster, the coming ruin, the utter destruction, they know the state of the nation because Amos has been proclaiming it. But they've departed from holiness and righteousness as a nation. They've lost the fervency for God. Instead of heeding the warning, they chose instead to dive headlong first into hedonistic pleasure-seeking. A picture of what was occurring along with a stern warning for today is this. Prosperity from God brings an obligation to use what he provides to serve and glorify him, not to indulge ourselves. You can take whatever God has given you and you can enjoy it when you take what he's given you and you're using it to glorify him, to serve him. But when you take what he's given you and you say, look at what I've done for myself and I'm gonna use it all on myself. God didn't give us this stuff for us to be selfish. He gave it to us to be used as a vehicle for his mercy, grace, love, and provision. We need to understand when we fall into complacency, when we are lulled by indulgence, it ends only in devastation. Never will it end good. In verse 7, Amos starts the therefore. He says, because of all this, this is the result. Therefore, they will now go into exile as the first of the captives. And the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. The Lord God has sworn by himself. This is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. I loathe Jacob's pride and hate his citadels. So I will hand over the city and everything in it. He says, and if there are 10 men left in one house, they will die. A close relative and burner will remove his corpse from the house and he will call to someone in the inner recesses of the house. Are there any more with you? And that person will reply, none. And he will say, silence, because the Lord's name must not be invoked. For the Lord commands, the large house will be smashed to pieces and the small house to rubble. Do horses gallop on the cliffs? Does anyone plow there with oxen? Yet you've churned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over Lodabar and say, didn't we capture Carnaim for ourselves by our own strength? But look, I am raising a nation up against you. House of Israel, this is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies, and they will oppress you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. The declaration from the Lord through Amos is that giant transitional word, therefore, because of this overindulgence, therefore, because of your false security, therefore, because of your complacency, you will now go into exile. He didn't say you will soon go into, you will now go into exile. And within 30 years, they did. And in God's timing of things, I just want you to know that's, that's pretty much now. These leaders, these dignitaries, he says, you will go first. You who have become complacent and lead others to, into complacency, you go first. And then he says that they're feasting, they're sprawling. 
all that ease that you said that you wanted and all that ease that you're seeking and searching for, it's gone. It'll come to an end. Those who fall into complacency know that it will end in devastation. That's the only path of complacency. People who become complacent in security are overtaken by those who would do things to hurt people. They say that the the time in which you're the least safe is when you think you're the most safe because all your vigilance is gone. The devastation that God is saying, it's going to be utter and it's going to be complete. The complacent are not acknowledging, they're not ready, and therefore they will be caught by surprise. That's why it is so devastating because they're not even ready for it. The Lord has sworn And look at who he swears by. He is sworn by himself. There's nothing more sure. This is God saying, absolutely, this will happen. It's the declaration of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of armies. Why will it happen though? Look at the the harsh words that he uses there. He says, the Lord loathes Jacob's pride and hates his citadels. The citadels are the uh, fortresses, uh, the strongholds, the the places where they feel safe, their, their palaces and stuff. What the Lord is saying is the Lord hates Jacob's pride and Jacob's sense of security, his prideful arrogance. And that's what we see in, in Luke 16, 15, It says, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your heart. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. We we tend to lift up the very things that God hates. And so the overindulgence, the the ability to have everything, the, the ability to just completely become complacent and have all the comforts of life, we lift that up as something to be had and to hold and to to live for. And in God's eyes, it's revolting. Proverbs 8, 13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. But look at what the Lord says. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. Through his prophets, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 50, verse 31, he speaks through his prophet. He says, look, I'm against you, you arrogant one. This is the declaration of the Lord God of armies. Your day has come, the time when I will punish you. Through his prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 2, 12, a day belonging to the Lord of armies is coming against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up. The promise is it will all be humbled. Completely so completely will God deliver them. He describes it as there's going to be 10 men left in a house, but they will die. This is if, if the 10 men were to escape and they go and try to find refuge in a house. He says they won't even survive there. They will die. He talks about a close relative being a burner of the corpses. This talks about like a, a, a pestilence that goes through where they would burn the bodies. This is, this is speaking where they're going to see this as such a curse that they're going to burn the very bodies so that there's nothing left to remain of it. And then the one who goes in to do that, the relative, speaks of like an uncle 
will come to remove the bodies and ask if there's any other survivors. And there's one in the house and he'll say, no, there's no others. And he says, stop before he goes, thank God. There's you. Thank God. There's a survivor. He says, stop. Don't invoke the name of the Lord lest he is awakened again and finishes out the wrath that he said. This is hyperbole and exaggeration in which God is saying, they will know I was the one that brought this calamity. They will know I brought this judgment. There will be no doubt that it was the Lord who did it. It's not saying that God would all of a sudden, oh, I forgot that there's still some people alive. No, it's anybody who is remaining after that would know the Lord brought that. God judged them and only God could forgive them. But I want to take our attention and I want us to see something. I believe God really showed this to me because sometimes we can start thinking about complacency, overindulgence and all that. And, and we'll think that it doesn't necessarily apply And I want you to see that he says small houses and large houses both will be utterly destroyed. And this is the stark reality. Indulgence and complacency and the coming judgment are not only against the rich and the elite. Theirs is just more obscenely gross and able to be seen. It's easier to catch. But those of lesser means are going to suffer likewise because of Israel's prideful denial of God and their complacency towards him. Going against what God has commanded them to do and how God has commanded them to live. And even talks about it, he's all, it's such an impossibility what you all have chosen to do. He says, do horses run on cliffs? I don't know if you ride horses or whatnot, but the last place you want to ride a horse is on a cliff especially right up to the edge of it. Then the other one, he says, an oxen. Does anybody plow with an oxen there? Would you take an oxen and start plowing along a cliff? Probably not. Both of these proverbs speak of something that they knew about nobody in their right mind would do that. So don't even continue in that. It's unprofitable. It's a labor of vanity. It's utter and stupid folly because the return is nothing. This is what they've done going against God's commands. That's what he's telling them. What you've done is is stupid. Nobody would ever do that if they knew it was coming. He says, but that's what you've done. You've done the unimaginable. You've taken righteousness, you turned it into wormwood, and justice into poison. That's complacency. Complacency leads to pride and arrogance, which only brings devastation. Amos reminds them, he says, you know how you boast about Lo-Dabar? And that's a city that they conquered, but he actually changed the name of it. You, you, You know what he changed the name to? I forget what the original name was, but basically what he changed the name to was nothing. He says, that's what you've done. Remember how you had that victory over nothing? It's, and, and, and in Carnaim, these are two places. One of them's near Gilead, and the other is in the area of Bashan. He says, you say you got it by your own strength. God says, what are you going to do now? I'm bringing a nation against you. Let's see you do it in your own strength now. 
He says the oppression will be total. He's all because you're complacent and you forgot who gave you that victory. You forgot who it was that brought you here. You forgot who it was that did that. Now I want to let you all know the idea of rest is not bad. This is an idea that God put forth at the beginning of creation. This is an idea, this is a, a, a privilege and a promise that Christ came and reiterated. In Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine, 29, he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's a promised rest that yet remains. And if you read Hebrews chapter three towards the end, all the way through chapter four, it talks about that there still yet remains a promise of rest because it wasn't fulfilled yet. Nobody's had that yet, but it still is yet to remain. There is a promise of rest. The Lord will allow us to rest, but it's not a sinful rest that comes from complacency. It's not a sinful rest that leads to laziness. It's not a sinful rest that leads to indifference. Because right now in this world where we're at, since it's permeated with sin and it's fallen, what happens is we are a victim of the laws of physics, right? What does it say? A body in motion tends to stay in motion and a body at rest tends to stay at rest until another thing actively acts upon it. You cannot just be like rest and and continue to actively move towards the will of God. A body at rest floats downstream. Any dead fish can float downstream. Complacency leading to indulgence. Spiritually complacent. Barna Research, this is a research done since 91, and it hasn't gotten any better, by the way. But it says Americans have become more spiritually complacent. 40% of born-again Christians do not attend church or read the Bible in a typical week. 30% are not absolutely committed to the Christian faith. 70% are not involved in a small group that meets for spiritual purposes. The percentage of adults who can be classified as born again rose from 35% in 91 to 41% in 01. However, participation in four key behaviors declined. Bible reading went down from 45% to 37%. Church attendance went down from 49% to 42%. Volunteering at church went from 27% to 20%. Adult Sunday school attendance from 23% to 19%. So while there's more people claiming to be born again, there's less actual spiritual activity. Complacency. And here's the thing. The biggest danger to complacency is this. Complacency is the step right before apathy. It's a step away from indifference. Complacency is an insidious sin based upon lies motivated by pride. It leads us to trust something other than God. We see this in the church of Laodicea. Jesus had some harsh words in Revelation for the church of Laodicea. He says, you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and I need nothing. And yet, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. My nickname for the church of Laodicea 
It's not the lukewarm church. Because when he talks about the lukewarmness, about them not either being hot nor cold, water in those days, you either wanted it hot or you wanted it cold. Anything else was useless. That's what Jesus is saying. The complacent, apathetic, indifferent church is useless. He can't use them. In Israel, complacency led to the death of the nation. It led to their rejecting their covenant with God. It led to a denial of their destiny as a nation. Soon that will all be reversed because God promised it would be. But I also want you to see in the church, complacency has led churches to close. Jesus in Revelation warns the churches. He says, repent and do these things or I will come and I will take your lampstand. I will take away the life of your church. Complacency in the church robs the church and God's people of servants. Because people go, I'm comfortable. I don't want to serve. I like my Sundays. I like sleeping in. I like this or that. You know, what, what have you. Whatever the reason is for not serving, we, we, we lose our servants. Complacency in the church robs us of our joy now and our rewards in the next life. And the number one danger for complacency in the church today is it leads to apathy for the lost and apathy about the coming judgment. The church that is complacent is not caring about the world outside that is on their way towards judgment. And they're not doing anything about it. What is the cure for complacency though? What's the cure for complacency? Understand that when nations get pleasure mad, when nations start going, look at all the stuff we can get, look at how much extra we can get, the end is near. In Daniel, Belshazzar was enjoying a feast on the night that Babylon fell. Babylon the Great. The Romans were enjoying free food and entertainment. In fact, they had free circuses when the empire decayed and fell. The mark of the end of days is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In chapter 3 verse 4, it says lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And Jesus warned us as his followers to not become complacent. So what's the cure for complacency? Jesus says be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life Otherwise, that day will come upon you unexpectedly. Complacency brings us to apathy, which makes us useless. If you have never come to the Lord Jesus, you're complacent with your life, that's because Satan doesn't rock a dead horse, right? He doesn't have to kick a dead horse. If you're already not in the kingdom of God, he's going to make your life feel like it's smooth and easy. He's not going to stir things up for you. He's not attacking you if you're not in the kingdom of God. But when you're in the kingdom of God, also if you're complacent, he's the one rocking the cradle, keeping you asleep. Careful not to wake you up. Careful not to stir it up too much in you. In both ways, we need to come to Christ. We need to heed the words of Christ. 
Christ first called those to come to him, to give their lives, to, to come and follow him and inherit the kingdom of God. And then he also told those who would follow him, those who would be his disciples, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. We need to be about that. We need to be making sure that we are not seeking our comfort because as we seek our comfort, we remain complacent and useless for the kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. Father, as your message speaks to our hearts, I pray that your spirit would reveal where we're at, Lord. Speak truth to us. Help us to to acknowledge the truth. Don't let us deny it. Don't let us ignore it and say, oh, that's not us. Or that doesn't apply to me. Father, if you want it to apply to us, I pray that, that we would have the strength of courage from your spirit to say, yes, Lord, that's me. And I repent and I come back, Lord, and I, and, and I ask for forgiveness. Lord, forgive me for being complacent, for being indulgent, for ignoring you. As you do that, come back to the Lord and say, here I am, Lord. Use me. Show me where you would have me. Show me what you would have me do. Jesus' name.